Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Scott Nye. I am David Bax, barely. Uh, barely. <laughs> yeah. Hanging in uh, there. Yeah, I would say uh, I would say I'm getting over a cold, but I think that the the problem is that I am not getting over a cold. I've had it for a week. It's better than it was, but it won't go away. It's entirely too long. But yeah, but I am um I've brought in the big guns. I'm on prescription meds now. Um thanks to my doctor who I don't know the uh, ethics of prescribing prescribing medication based on a FaceTime. Uh, that seems like kind of thing you fake pretty easily. Uh, yeah, but I'm also not, it's not like I'm trying to get like oxys out of her, you know, <laughs> like it's not, I don't know if there's a black market for the Z pack that I'm on to, to, to knock this infection out of my chest. I figure there's always someone getting <clears throat> off on something. Yeah. <laughs> I've never, I don't think I've been on prescription meds for a cold since I was a child. I don't even know what they would give you. Yeah. No, me, me either, but that's what Natalie, uh, suggested and, and I did it and I, cause I'm like, okay, I'm, as I've said before, I'm a man, I'm 40, but I still like, in some ways I still have a mindset of a person in his twenties, oh, which is like, I think because I've been generally healthy, even though I've had health insurance regularly for like over a decade, I think I still have the mindset of someone who doesn't have health insurance and it's mm. like, Oh, it's going to be such a hassle. And like having a, like a FaceTime appointment with the doctor and then being able to go literally around the corner from my house to the Walgreens to pick up medications that are dirt cheap because of my <laughs> insurance. Uh, it was like a revelation. I could have been doing this every time I got sick for the past 10 years, but it also made me angry on behalf of all the people who don't have insurance. I was just about to say, it sounds like there's nothing wrong with the American healthcare system. It sounds like it's working well for <laughs> Mr. David back. So it's actually working well for me this week too. I had this, uh, like bruised a rib or something that's been hurting like hell. And so I went to urgent care in and out in 45 minutes prescriptions in yeah. hand. Yeah. The, uh, the wait at the Walgreens was not so forgiving, but uh, other than that, pretty, pretty I, good experience. I, th I think I bruised a rib once um, shortly um, pre pandemic. I, I didn't ever go get it checked out. I just like toughed it out and let it heal on its own. But I um, was a, uh, I have to, talked about my nephew before on the on the podcast um he's a skateboarder and uh we were over at at that family's house my sister-in-law's house and we were out by their pool and you know having a few beers and he was like you know he was probably like 15 at the time he was like let me show you some tricks uncle david and i like tried to get enough skateboard and immediately like wham, just fell down in the concrete and i'm pretty sure i bruised bruised a rib uh doing that but um yeah, uh, I can't remember where we were, um, but you know, speaking of medical issues, uh, Tyler Smith, you might notice, is not here. Instead, there's the almost as good battleship retention editor at large, Scott and I, um, because yeah, Tyler is is still battling this uh, very rare and um, scary and and very difficult uh, medical condition. If you want to know what's going on, if you haven't been keeping up to date, you can uh, find out what's going on over at caringbridge.org slash visit slash Tyler and Jennifer Smith. That's where you can find updates. Also, you can find a link to the GoFundMe to help uh, Tyler and his family with the uh, medical bills. I imagine their medical bills are a little more expensive than the uh, medications I, I picked up at Walgreens today. Um, so again, you can find everything at caringbridge.org slash visit slash Tyler and Jennifer Smith. Um, 
I didn't run this uh, past you, uh, Scott. The, the best the, kind of topic show topic is the one you don't run by people. I yeah, I completely for, I just completely forgot because I'm not in my right mind. Um, what is your plan? Should Twitter go under? <laughs> um, to find uh, peace in my life at last. Um, I, I, no, I don't think I have a plan to like replace it. And I um, don't know that I would seek to. I, I think like the extent to which I built up any kind of Twitter audience, which is fairly modest. I mean, I have a couple thousand followers. It's nothing to really brag about. But um, that happened by like such random happenstance and a concerted period of small effort that I don't really want to like go through the trouble again of like mm-hmm. building it all up. Um, I'll, I'll miss the people with whom I interact regularly on there. Um, but probably be in some ways for the best to not have something I check in with so often during the day. That's probably true. I remember I definitely, when, when my space stopped being a, a going concern for most people, I saw it as a blessing. Cause I was like a total MySpace addict in like 2006, 2007, um, heavily blogging on MySpace every single day. Uh, and then Facebook came along and I never really, I take, I have a Facebook. I use it to like link to battleship retention posts and stuff, but I don't really use Facebook, but then Twitter sucked me back in. Um, and so I, and there's a part of me that doesn't really think Twitter's going to, going to fully go under um, it's hard to envision it going completely under yeah um but uh yeah it if it does i did uh create a discord account today see like all the replacements people talk about like discord or mastodon they all sound very complicated discord is not complicated i just had to make an account discord is just like it reminds me of the pre-twitter like message board days Right, um, but you have to find like the Discord you want to be in, right? Yes, yes. See, that's um, the thing. That's what I like about Twitter is like there's obviously communities and there's film Twitter and weird Twitter and music Twitter and whatever else, but like mm-hmm. they just happen organically and are kind of flowing amongst each other. The idea of dedicating to a topic, I think it removes what's appealing about Twitter to me is that like you kind of fault people based on a loose interest, but you end up finding out about so much more along the way. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, yeah, so hopefully it doesn't go under, but uh, you know what else I did to to uh, to envision myself? Like, well, how, how often, how would I use Twitter most of the time? To kill time. Like, yeah. I'm waiting for a movie to start and it's not worth getting the book or magazine I'm on, totally. on my backpack. I'm just going to, like, read a few tweets. So I also downloaded on my phone the old classic... Uh, graphing calculator early smartphone game brick breaker so i've been, sure. playing, a of, I've been playing, playing a lot of brick breaker the last few days <laughs> so i guess that's kind of my plan excuse me i'm not sure the coughs are coming large i'm not sure how good a job i did of uh i heard it okay sorry sorry everyone but um i guess speaking of things i do on my phone i guess um I, uh, I listen to music and I do so using my tweaked, tweaked earbuds, which are, excuse me, <clears throat> available at a low, low price at tweaked But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. Um, today I, I almost skipped, uh, skipped the recommend recommendation. Um, 
let's see today i was listening to uh there's a band or i guess i should say there was a band called uh really from r-e-a-l-o-y space f-r-o-m really from um they only existed a couple of years and then they just broke up uh and it feels like things move so fast now you know like when i was a teenager i would go through entire phases in that amount of time and now it's like a band that i barely even got a chance to get to know is already breaking up and like playing farewell shows and stuff but uh so um just to say that i knew them when i've been listening to a lot of really from today sonic good at my tweaktardio.com earbuds like i said they're available at a low low price at tweaktardio.com if you use the offer code pretension at checkout you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite clear aligners are doctor directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Scott? What's up? We're back. Let's get into it, shall we? This is going to be a Scott-heavy episode for a number of reasons. What are we doing? Uh, we're talking about AFI Fest Film Festival, which I believe is their full name now. Um, they're no longer AFI Fest presented by Audi. We don't yeah. have to say that any longer. It sounds so weird to not say presented by Audi. I got so used to absolutely saying presented by Audi every time like I was supposed to. Yeah, um, which was those were fun days, the free days. Um, but I did notice that like most of their branding and stuff was called afi fest film festival which was very confusing itself um but i guess well, that's in keeping with like the um the tcm classic film festival the turner classic movies classic film festival um also has that sort of redundancy to it but at least they're saying different words they got film and movies in there um right saying, but i'm saying that the word classic twice it's not called oh, the do, Tur- yeah. tcm film festival right. it's called the tcm classic film festival Fair enough. Um, you I like to rag on AFI Fest, but as you and I were noting oh, at the festival, okay. um, <laughs> what are you going on about? I, I mean, I was going to rag on AFI Fest is what I was going to do. Oh, no. I mean, I will certainly have plenty of opportunity to do so throughout this episode. But as you and I were saying, as the festival is going, it has shrunk uh, post-COVID. Um, and it would be a shame were it to go away entirely. It was... it we were kind of noting it because the first day of the festival was very sparsely attended, at least the screens we were at. I did notice larger crowds over the weekend, which you could not sadly make it to. Um, So I I feel like it's going strong. I feel like it's doing well. Um, The programming is still, I think pre on point, which it has been in the entire time I've been attending, which is now like 11 years, which is weird to think about. Um, I mean, that's what I was going to say is that like the programming is so strong. It'll always keep me coming back. I always yeah. look forward to AFI Fest, but it also wouldn't be AFI Fest if there weren't some like confounding organization policy type of problems. Oh, yeah. And this time, okay, <clears throat> maybe some of our listeners will see what the issue is here. I didn't see it. Neither did a lot of other people. 
I bought a pass this year because you, uh, Scott is the official Battlefield Pretension representative with the press pass for AFI Fest. I bought a pass. In the pass <clears throat> uh, uh, that I bought, which is the only real one they had, that uh, which I'll get to, um, entitles me to six reserved tickets over the course of the long weekend. And then it says, I can rush line anything else. Now, I had an idea of what a rush line was that I think a lot of people had. Now, maybe some of you listeners are even more film festival savvy than Scott and I are, but I'm no, I'm no stranger to film festivals. There's something I didn't realize. You've been around. You've been to a Toronto, to a park city. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, So what I took that to mean is I get six reserve tickets and then, and it says when you reserve a ticket, it says be seated 15 minutes prior to the performance or we will, you know, you, we could give away yeah. your seat. So when it says six reserve tickets and rush line to anything else, I took that to mean, I clearly was not alone as I found out Thursday night uh, to mean I get six reserve tickets and then 15 minutes before any other movie starts, if there's room for me, I can go in. That's what I took that to mean. This notably is the way Sundance works. I don't know if you thought about this. No, because I've never but, rush lined at Sundance. Really? You never did? No. Oh, I did it all the time. It was great. But yeah, that's okay. how Sundance works. Okay. So it turns out there's... So like I go the Thursday night, I see my first movie that I have a reserve ticket for. I want to see another movie. It's a late start. I intentionally was like... I intentionally was saving my rush line for things I didn't think would sell out. So I go up to the ticket thing to be like, how do I get my rush line ticket or how do I get in? And they're like, well, this movie's not sold out. So there's no rush line, which means you have to buy a ticket. Your pass gives you the ability to buy a ticket at a discount, but you have to buy a ticket, which I like, I didn't realize it kind of feels like if that's your policy, like I wish, why isn't there a pass level? That's like another 50 bucks and gets you 10 tickets instead of six or something like that. That would, that would have completely solved this problem. But I'm like, wow, that's, that's not spelled out. No. But I was like, but I was like, okay, if that's the rule, I must misunderstood it. I'll buy the ticket while they're starting to ring up my ticket. Literally no joke. Five more people come up with the exact same <laughs> request and the exact same, like understanding and yeah. confusion. And so, so many of us are like starting to get like incensed by this, I guess <laughs> that, that eventually they, I didn't end up having to buy a ticket. They just, gave us all tickets to the evening screening. And clearly this must have set in, like I said, a lot of people had the same uh, problem because the second night, my last night of the festival, because I didn't go Saturday or Sunday for personal reasons. And like I said, I was also sick. Um, Excuse me. um, I went to my first screening that I had a ticket for. And then the second screening I was going to go to and did go to, uh, I didn't have a ticket. So I had the same, I was like, I'm going to go up to, I like walked up to the box office and I was like, Hey, I know there was some confusion last night about the rush line thing. I was hoping to see human flowers of flesh. And the, and the guy literally just like peeled off a ticket and handed it to me. Didn't even let me finish my sentence. He was just like, here so you go. Dealing with exactly that problem. I'm sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, for next year, they either, they need to address this in some way, make the policy clear. And then also, yeah, just ha- like if there were a slightly higher, level of pass that got me 10 tickets to the six, I would have bought that, you it's, know, 
Yeah, it's just shocking that anyone would write that down and be like, this is very clear. Everyone yeah. will understand. Yeah. Uh, drop my laptop. I mean, the, the big the big way they pitch it is that like you can rush line the red carpet stuff, which is like immediately sold out because it's like mostly reserved by the studio. It, most people who attend those things aren't really paying. Um, so that's kind of the big pitch, and that makes sense. But they like clearly didn't think about how that would affect like people going to see, in your case, pee off, you know, or whatever. And, yeah, yeah, and human flowers of flesh. Yeah, yeah things that weren't. Yeah, they clearly didn't consider that. Um, yeah. But uh, anyway, so that's my yearly like gripe about the way AFI Fest is organized. But again, like I said, they could keep pulling stuff like this and I will still, I will still keep coming back every year because the programming is very strong. And I saw, I only saw four movies, but they were all good. And three of them were in fact, great. There you go. Uh, All right. I I should say only saw four movies um, at the festival. I actually did see more, you know, I have more things to talk about that played the festival as that do I, have, I that I have seen that we're going to, we're going to, going to kind of roll into to this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but we're going to start alphabetically unless you had any other, um, sort of general thoughts. No, I'll pepper in my observations about okay. lines and various things that the movies <laughs> that are affected. Yeah. Um, so right. yeah, we'll start with, um, a movie that I did not see at the festival proper, but which played there, um, early on, which was the new Alejandro Gonzalez Inuritu film, Bardo, False Chronicles of a Handful of Truths. Or False Chronicle? Maybe just a single chronicle? Who's the same? Um, hey, you're the one who saw it. Yeah, you know, ish. Um, I caught this at the New Art across town, which is playing it weirdly on 35mm, even though it was shot digitally. Um, looks fantastic. Beautiful print. Beautifully shot by uh, Darius Kanji. And I think this might be my new favorite in your reach movie, but it's not like that means a lot either. And I'm not like entirely anti in your Um, I think if he, this actually kind of ties into our, our episode uh, last week on like dormer poster movies. Like uh-huh. if I was seeing his shit when I was like 15 to 19, I would be like completely all in. And like when, even when the revenant came out, which I like, didn't really like, I was like, I'm glad that there are 15 to 17 year olds who are going to see this movie and get completely hooked on movies because of it. Like it's clearly that's the kind of movies operating in. That's his key audience. And I can dig that. Um, Bardo, you know, at least is much, much, much weirder than the other movies of his I've seen. I mean, I haven't seen like beautiful, which is supposed to be a little strange and I haven't seen, I think anything before Babel. Oh, so okay. So you didn't see because I was that kid. Like uh, yeah. I was when Amoris Paris during the key years. Yeah, yeah. When Amoris Paris came out, it would have been. I mean, that was a two thousand release, but I probably would have seen it early two thousand one, which yeah. meant that I was eighteen years old. Perfect. Um, and uh, but yeah, it also like it didn't last long because by the time of twenty one grams, when I saw it, I was like, just a point where I was like this feels like something I would or should like, but 21 <laughs> grams kind of left me cold. And then I didn't see another of his movies until the Revenant actually. Oh really? You didn't even see Birdman? Oh, no, no Birdman. Bird, I forgot. Okay. Birdman was before the Revenant. I get that yeah. mixed up. Yeah. Um, anyway. Yeah. I, I like Bardo more than the other films of his I've seen, but it, I don't know that I would still exactly call it good. I mean, it's very surreal, which is pretty cool. It's about like, a Mexican journalist and it doesn't really have a plot exactly. 
It's just kind of about him going through his life and these very surreal encounters he seems to have. Um, it's kind of the stylistically more in line with something like uh, Enter the Void, even if it doesn't have the like hmm. loose one take aesthetic, but it kind of feels that sort of like ever unfolding. You walk into a room and suddenly it's a new location kind of thing. Um, and this eventually gets all wrapped up in a plot explanation thing that is predictable, but I, nevertheless, I won't give away here. Um, but it gives Inuritu license to really go all out with stylization and dreamy sequence stuff. And so there's just like a lot of like cool shit in the movie. Um, there's like a dance club sequence where he's dancing with his daughter. And every time she like claps, the song changes. And then hmm. it does like a uh, totally, well, not acapella. It's like clearly they just took the vocal track of David Bowie's Let's Dance. And like they're all dancing that. And like that's a song where they have like big gaps like lyrics but there's not the music playing mm -hmm. and it's just this like like neon lit and people dancing but just hearing bowie's voice in it and it's like there's some just basically like just cool movie shit in it it is also like two and a half hours long and not all the sequences are that exciting and it's kind of hung on a loose kind of like eight and a half inspired kind of idea where like you can tell that a lot of the characters hang up are just hang ups like there's a lot of people who kind of come to him for being like um, the character is a journalist, but he's also like films and stuff is getting a series of awards. And it's very much mm -hmm. like any reaches personal concerns after winning too many Oscars <laughs> kind of thing of like, <laughs> Hey, I'm sorry you won too many awards guy. That must be tough. Um, <laughs> and, but there, I mean, there's some stuff also about like um, Mexican characters to like a wide audience, which I know any reach has been accused of. Um, and so there's a, there's a personal angle, but at the same time, like I was thinking about the movie of why it wasn't working for me and why these movies in general tend to work for me. And I think it's just because I never really feel like Inuritu means it. Like he's getting all the moves right and he has kind of the general form right, but I never really feel like his genuine investment in it all. Um, and so I think it still kind of has that hang up. But, you know, if you're down... I mean, you're getting at the thing that I always say that I want first and foremost out of any artist, which is honesty. Yeah. Uh, but I, I feel like it is honest. It's just like, I just don't feel like he knows how to really be vulnerable in it. You know, um, there's something about the performances where there's, it just feels like the whole thing's hovering a little bit above itself and trying to just separate itself a little bit from what it could be doing. Um, and I mean, Birdman had this problem all over the place where it was like, theoretically vulnerable but a lot of it was just like lashing out at the audience and the world and how great artists are etc cetera, etc cetera. um and it didn't really feel like it was really like i mean eight and a half came to mind a lot in bardo for um obviously i kind of self-reflective reasons and mm. eight and a half is very much like oh no i'm a huge piece of shit <laughs> um kind of movie and bardo is still like a little bit like yeah but the world man you can't beat it um so if you're down for like two and a half hours of occasional cool movie shit, I would recommend it, but um, not not strongly. Okay, well, let's move on to another, um, I guess by AFI standards, big name movie uh, before we get into the, like the uh, yeah, the real small stuff. The the yeah, the more uh, art house world cinema stuff. Uh, Luca Guadagnino's uh, Bones and All, which a movie we referenced last week yeah um and it turns out to have fulfilled that promise of uh being absolutely so did better you see this? poster movie uh yes yes okay. I, I have seen bones and all now and um 
uh, yeah, I, I, I really liked it. Uh, I it definitely speaks to the, um, I mean, I was, I was never actually a teenage goth, but there is still a teenage goth kid who lives inside me. Sure. And, uh, and this movie definitely spoke to that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, for those who don't know, it's about, uh, two young people who are, I mean, you could classify them as cannibals, but they, there seems to be like some more supernatural thing going on where like, there's a series of people throughout the world who feel compelled to eat people for reasons beyond like personal taste. It's some like almost vampiric. Yeah. Uh, very much like a vampire like type of hunger like kind of thing. Mythos. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you've seen trouble every day, trouble every day is like a better version of this, but it's the same idea. Um, and they can also like sniff each other out. And so there's this like slightly supernatural element hanging over it. Um, but Taylor Russell and Timothée Chalamet play the two main cannibals. Um, fine young cannibals. Fine young cannibals. And uh, it's kind of like a road trip movie. And so they like encounter a series of other people, most of whom are also cannibals. Um, and, and so, or cannibal victims. Or cannibal victims. Um, some, I think some sections are stronger than others, as these things tend to be. I think, unfortunately for me, I found the Mark Rylance stuff to be the least effective. And he, as far as those kind of cameos go, he's in the most of it. Um, I just thought his performance was kind of bad. <laughs> Did you like him in it? Uh, I didn't think it was it was bad. It's definitely like... Um, uh, uh, affected and but i think um in terms of what he means to taylor russell's journey i think he is appropriately off-putting for sure i i just think it so it builds to i'm not going to say exactly what happens in the end but it builds to kind of like yeah. the obvious way the movie should end but i think the way in which it goes about forcing it to that place made it it kind of let the characters off the hook Whereas I think they okay. can end in the same place, but be so much more incisive and effective without Mark Rylance's intrusion on it all. Um, but I kind of found, I mean, aside from Andre Holland, who's in like the very first part of the movie, he plays Taylor Russell's dad. Um, and then his, he like records her tape after like kind of abandoning her because she's 18 now. And he's like, I don't know what to deal with you. You've eaten too many people and we all just have to move. Um, so you're on your own kind of thing. Um, and so his voice kind of carries throughout the movie, but he's really only in the first like 10 or 15 minutes. Mm. Um, but aside from him, I found the performances to get better kind of as the, ca the cameos kind of cycled through, like then Michael Stewart comes along and you're like, well, he's doing a lot, but he's kind of nailing it. And then Jessica Harper, I thought was like fantastic. Um, um, wait, who is Jessica Harper? Oh, she's okay. The, like grandmother basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then Chloe 70 shows up and she's like, I mean, Chloe 70 is always great. And so she's like yeah. unbelievably great. Um, so up until I think like the very end of the movie, um, kind of the last big showdown, I, I yeah. think the movie was getting progressively better for me. And by the time right before that scene, it, it was like potential top 10 stuff of like, I'm really into what this movie is laying down. It is like very 19 year old dorm room kind of movie, but I think it was really working for me in a big way until that moment. Yeah, I mean that kind of like um uh that teen thing that Romeo and Juliet thing of like a romance that's so desperate and so strong that it can't help but destroy one or both of the participants uh is uh catnip for me and is really totally. well realized here. 
you missed a couple of um, as long as we're naming all the people in the movie, you missed a couple. When you mentioned Michael Stuhlbarg, you forgot to mention that his buddy is played by yeah. David Gordon Green. Um, and then also um, uh, the Vast of Nights, Jake Horowitz shows up. Um, That's right. And, and is actually really good and like uh, sort of a little heartbreaking without saying what happens in, in, in that, in that section of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, a lot of, a lot of great performances all, all around. I forgot and to also, okay. Yeah, you go. Uh, I was going to say something about how, um, uh, I'm, we're talking, I'm talking about the romance element of it, but, um, to go back to the cannibal part of it, it is a movie that is for long stretches, not gory, but when it is, very it very much is and <laughs> yeah. i i appreciated that got some heavy reactions from the wilshire screening room audience i was with <laughs> um i forgot to note the cinematographer's name but it's some relative newcomer but it looks fantastic um i could tell you if you give me just one second cinematographers arseni kachaturin sure sounds good to me so yeah um Trying to see if I've, I don't think I've seen, he's got a lot of shorts and stuff on here. Yeah, yeah exactly. Think, he's like yeah. pretty much brand new to the scene and like Guadagnino picked him out of nowhere and uh, abandoned his usual, uh, a peach pong call cinematographer and uh, went with this okay. guy. All right. Um, so yeah, that's bones at all. Um, to get to our first genuine AFI Fest movie, the first movie that you and I saw at the festival yeah, I saw it together. Yeah, Dry Ground Burning, which I think you liked more than I did, but I think we're both basically uh, pro. It's a very uh, very vibey movie, not a lot of plot, and again, quite long, which I... It was kind of wearing thin for me as it went on. It, that's interesting, because it didn't... Yeah. Um, it didn't for me. I, I, I found it... Um, because it's it's quite long, but it's also, it's a, I guess, a docu drama i guess it's it's sort of um sort of it's loosely inspired by something that actually happened of this like these sort of like female criminals like selling blackmail blackmail black market <laughs> gasoline to yeah. bikers i guess um so it's loosely inspired by something that actually happened and then recreated by the actual two sisters who did right, it who did it and so they're playing themselves but then there also are segments where they're sitting around talking about the fact that they're playing themselves. Um, but it's more than that. They're not just like, it's not like a uh, symbiopsycho taxiplasm. It's not that they're not just talking specifically about the movie they're making. You can see they're, they're, they're talking about their um, hopes and dreams to be like sort right. of broad about it. They're, they're talking about their, their lives and, you know, they both, I think they've both been to prison or at least one of them gets out of prison at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Um, and so she's got like this new, you know, not to, not no pun intended with the title, but this fire in her to like, uh, I don't know if it's about making up for the time she was away or like making some, something of herself so she doesn't have to go back or, or whatever. But I, I think, um, uh, a lot of the movie is about people. It, it's a depiction of people who are burning bright and maybe for a short time, ironically for a movie that's what two hours and 30 something minutes long or yeah. whatever. Um, but uh, it, there's a lot of passion in the movie. I think that's what kept me 
going that that's why I didn't flag at all the way that, that, that you did, because uh, I was like caught up in these, the, this, the, the way that the, the directors, I forget the names. Only one of them was present at the screening. Um, Joanna something. Um, uh, yeah. Joanne Pimenta and, uh, a dearly queerus, I'll say. Okay. Um, well, he wasn't present, so we don't have yeah. to say his his name right. Um, the just the, the way the way that they they captured that um, that bright but maybe futile spark of of um, these people in this un, unfair, potentially go nowhere situation economically. Um, socially, because there's a whole other storyline that is inter- intertwined, and some of these people know each other about a, a woman running for a political office in this like neighborhood of is it Sao Paulo? Is that what is it? Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's Brasilia, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, I think it's no, Brasilia. it's it's not Sao Paulo, but it's Sao something. No, I'm saying that that's the the neighborhood, but isn't the city in Brasilia? Oh, I don't uh, know. Now, now you've lost me. Oh, say peripheral city of Silandia. Okay, but there's definitely a shot where we see the big round government buildings that I know are oh, okay. Brasilia. Um, anyway, there's a woman running for office. I don't know if you were able to. I couldn't quite understand what the what the office was. No, um, no idea. But she's some sort of I don't know district representative or whatever, uh, and you can see that same passion that these criminal women have in her to, to, uh, to make something with the short time that she has. And and she is some of my favorite stuff is just with her, just like she's so forceful and like eloquent, but not in like a highfalutin way. She's like, um, almost like she's spitting bars, like, like a rapper. Like she's, uh, there's a, there's maybe my favorite scene in the movie. Well, I like the end a lot too, um, with the like military vehicle, yeah, uh, and everything. But my favorite scene in the movie is the pol- political woman or the the political candidate on the back of a motorcycle filming. Yeah. She's doing a selfie that's just like a campaign video while she's zooming through the streets, and she's just like almost like stream of consciousness, just like firing out all the things that she's going to do and all the things that are wrong with the neighborhood and what they're trying to do and what she's risking. And and it's like, uh, it's so exciting and it's all on the back of a motorcycle and it's so, it's so cool. Um, uh, yeah. So I, uh, yeah, I loved it. Right on. I mean, if nothing else, it lives up to its title right away. People are burning stuff on dry ground. Yeah. Literally happens right at the beginning. Yeah. There's like a lot of cool, like, oil shit of which is like people like i don't know drilling or plumbing or whatever and just like the great soundscape of all these machines and glooping yeah. noises and uh there's a couple i don't know if we call them musical numbers exactly but people singing um yeah. as usual in foreign language films some pop song that's like ultimately depressing and like very mundane um <laughs> as foreign film pop songs tend to be um so yeah I, I i did like it i just wasn't quite as into it as you and more a little long all right um, well uh i didn't yeah. see the next one so next one your... is the five devils directed by leah messias say a uh, french woman french film uh she had directed one front film prior called ava which i haven't seen but she's the co-writer on um tons of really cool weird mass french movies 
like Ishmael's Ghosts, Paris 13th District, and this year's Stars at Noon. Um, so I was like, this woman's clearly got very strange tastes. And so I, I'm really keen to see her movie. And sure enough, her movie is deeply strange. Um, she actually co-wrote this with the film's cinematographer, uh, Paul Guillaume, who's also her partner or husband or some romantic deal. Um, and you don't see a lot of movies co-written by a cinematographer. So that's also no. intriguing. Um, it is about how to describe the five devils. So Adele Exarchopoulos uh, stars as a woman. She's a swimming instructor. She has a young daughter who um, has some kind of like super smell basically. And her super smell, man, I was tired when I was seeing this movie. So I'm trying to recount it. Her super smell can also just like transport her to the past in some way. And she can like see into the past. And there's a bunch of stuff from uh, her, her mother's past that she kind of revisits and looks into that intersects with um, uh, her father's past. Her mother and father are still together. I made it sound like they're not, but um, they're still together. And then more pertinently, um, she has this aunt who's coming to town who has like this very sordid backstory that the town's all flutter about. Um, she kind of revisits as she goes back and the way in which um film kind of like intersects the two is done very well and kind of vaguely like horror realms where like the aunt in the past can see the daughter like looking at her from the future kind of thing um and so there's a lot of like cool stuff in it uh that really drove the movie forward i don't remember a ton of other details of what i dug about it because like i said it was fairly late at night and i was a little on the sleepy yeah. side but um is a super cool, weird French movie. And uh, sometimes that's good enough. And our Adele Oxotopolis, who unfortunately, like, I feel like I haven't seen in too many movies post Blue is the Warmest Color, but I know she's been like an active actress. Um, so it was good to see her again in like kind of a lead meaty role. Um, yeah, dug it. Yeah. Um, yeah, now you got me curious as to what else she was in well she was she was in she was in mandibles yeah i was just gonna say she was in mandibles not in like a huge role and, yeah uh kind of in like a problematic role but um yeah uh oh she was also in a movie called the white crow which don't see that oof yeah i feel like a lot of things she did i was like oh i did a lot of shops this new movie and like it got bad reviews and so i was just like ah, moved on and i guess um, uh, she was in two movies at AFI Fest because she was also in the 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 new Quentin Depew smoking oh, causes yeah. coughing which I didn't it was on my if I had been able to go Saturday and Sunday that was on my um on my list of things to see but I didn't see it because uh, I was coughing well, um from smoking I don't know smoking. yeah okay well let's move on to I guess like dry ground burning the movie we, we both liked but you clearly liked more yeah um human flowers of flesh um I mean, like, there's not a lot to hang your hat on in this movie. Um, directed by Helena Whitman, um, who has made a ton of films before. I wasn't familiar with her at all, but she shoots her own movies. And so it's very much like first person kind of filmmaking. Mm -hmm. uh, it stars Angeliki, oh gosh, Papulia, let's say, um, who we all might remember from Dogtooth and a few other uh, Yorgos Lanthimos movies um she is a woman who gets on a boat and goes sailing for a while i like 
I've read plot descriptions of this that clearly figured out more of it, or at least yeah. who were more okay with reading the press notes and just cribbing from that, which like is my secret suspicion every time people understand more of the plot than I do. Yeah. Um, but it's totally just like complete vibe movie of like woman on a boat, a lot of waves, a lot of wind, a lot of rocks. Um, and at the end she meets Denis Levant, which we're always happy to see. And there's like, yeah, vague references to uh claire denise beau Traval, which denise levant was in and like kind of there's a feeling in which this character in this could be an extension of that and there's a couple other like specific visual motifs from that movie that factor into this but it's not like enough that it's like purely referential or you could totally hang your hat on that connection um i mean really like the person who introduced this movie i can't remember who um from afi introduced the movie but um was right that it's just like tune out enjoy the wind enjoy the waves enjoy the strapping young deckhands on the boat um and the you know 89 minutes or whatever actually i think this was a full like hour 45 yeah, um, yeah passed pretty quickly for me i was uh i was very very into what the movie was laying down yeah this is where i'm gonna say like i didn't dislike the movie i would also agree that i was engaged the entire time and it did not feel like it dragged for me uh at all it was uh, a, a a very pretty and engaging hour and 45 minutes or whatever i just i think the 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 hang-up for me i think was that i found the i mean you wouldn't even call them characters but no impossible the, the people on the boat i found to be kind of like bland like it's like a bunch of good-looking like people like good looking guys, but in kind of like a boring way. And I didn't find, I didn't find the people as interesting. I found um, them uh, visually compelling beyond being like blandly good looking. I don't know. There's something in the way, like you have to position yourself to, you know, crew a boat basically. That's like very angular positions um, for a human body to take. And of course the guys are in good shape. So uh, they fall at those positions. Well, um, I also, as much as we like try to pretend that we as, as critics and observers are able to come up with a, 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 a fair judgment of every movie, there's also just circumstantial things. I had just come from a movie that I thought was terrific, amazing, that also took place largely on the water. And so I think oh, there was something, yeah, sure. there was something that was just like, this is good, but it's not as good as what I just saw. Maybe you're a little seasick, David. Yeah. Yeah, no, but but I also don't. I don't want to sound like I'm talking down about Human Flowers of Flesh. It's a it's a really good movie, and like I said, I was not for a movie that I think would sound like it could be boring because it's an hour and forty five minutes of hanging out in a boat and nothing really happens until Denis Levant shows up at the end. Right. Um, I was never bored at all in, during the during the movie. Um, did you? I know we were sitting near each other. Did you hear someone behind us when? When Denis Levant was uh, like at the very end of the movie, during his scene, someone said he should be in every movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, hard agree. Like, yeah, no complaints here. Um, I've been meaning to note, like, when some of these have distribution or not. I don't think the Five, Five Devils does, but Drag Around Burning is coming from Grasshopper at some point, and Human Flowers of Flesh is coming from Cinema Guild at some point. So, when you say uh, at some point, do you mean at some point? this year like by the i end would of the be year, surprised or? if okay. it's by the end of the year so probably next year um yeah it's just frustrating because i feel like i've known dry ground burning has been on my radar since like berlin 
maybe. So it's like sometimes it's frustrating to to have a movie that is in my conscious no so long and it's still not gonna get a full release until until next double year. checking where to watch. Nope, they only have festival dates, although there is one coming yeah. up in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So if you're oh, listening cool. to this and you live in Milwaukee and you're listening to this before yeah. November eighteenth, go see yeah. uh, Drag Rambo. Could happen. Yeah. Um all right, cool. Next one is a me only movie. Um, Saeem Sadiq's Joyland. Uh, this is his debut feature, the first Pakistani film, I believe, to play the Cannes Film Festival and is wow. Pakistan's entry for the Oscars this year. So I didn't check the distribution stats, but I just figured it would have some based on like the Oscar submission and kind of the Cannes prestige. And it's just like a really good audience friendly drama. Um, I mean, you know, as far as like audience friendly goes for a foreign drama, there's still some rough stuff in it, but it's like, it's got a plot, you know, it's, it's no human flowers of flesh. Um, Mm -hmm. it's about, uh, a man played by Ali, Ali, uh, Junejo, I'll say best guess, um, who is married, doesn't have a kid yet. Um, he's been looking for work for a long time. And his wife, meanwhile, is the breadwinner in the house, which in his somewhat conservative Pakistani household is uh, kind of looked down upon. So when he gets a job, everyone's very excited. But little do they know he, his, his job is as a backup dancer for at an exotic theater. Um, and not only for a- anyone, but for a trans uh, woman who performs during the intermissions at the exotic dance show. So uh, while everyone's going to have a smoke break, there's a few people hang behind to watch uh, this woman dance. Um, and so he's trying to just like kind of keep it on the down low. He kind of passes off as saying he's a, the theater manager. And so like, they're like, all right, fine. Just don't tell anyone in the neighborhood. But if they found out that he was actually a dancer, it'd be like unheard of. Um, and he eventually kind of develops a fascination with the the woman who's the lead dancer played by uh, Alina Khan. Um, a fascination that turns into an active romance. Meanwhile, uh, his wife is at home um, who gave up her job and is a job she really liked and was really finding a lot of fulfillment in but because um they live with his whole family and like he's got a brother who just who has like four kids and he's got an elderly father to take care of it was felt that she needs to stay home and she's like kind of slowly suffocating as a result of that i thought her story was kind of the strongest angle in part because uh rusty farouk i'll say um is the strongest actress in the ensemble all of them apparently like this is their first or second film they're like they have some theater training, but they're not mm-hmm. film actors. And sometimes I think it comes across a little bit, but she's really, really good. Uh, and it's definitely the best part of the movie and kind of has the most active conflict to play with. I think the romance that develops between the main guy and the dancer kind of plays some familiar beats in kind of queer films where it's like, finally, this guy's in a queer environment and he's getting to explore himself and like everything in the queer environment's great until it's not. Now it's darkness. And so if you've seen any number of queer films, you know, this is a very familiar trope. Um, It's well acted and kind of well performed and well told, but it's very rote ground. I I think the particulars of her um, story are very nuanced and pretty bold in some of the ways in which it takes her character um, the film is, I think by the time we're releasing this, just opening in Pakistan. So they, in the Q and a, we're very much like, we don't really know if this is going to go over in our home country. We're going to see, um, you know, we passed the censorship board, but we're still mm-hmm. kind of concerned about the response. Um, 
So yeah, I think there's a lot to chew on in the movie for sure. And it's a very well-told drama. So I definitely recommend people check it out. Um, uh, do I have anything else to say about this movie? No, I guess not. Good film. All right. Next one, I believe is also me only one, right? All right. It's uh, my most anticipated movie of the year. Mia Hansen loves one fine morning. Um, Mia Hansen love and her star Leah Sadu were supposed to be at the screening for a Q and a, which I was very much looking forward to, but sadly they cannot make it. Um, I, wonder sure why. Must, I, I know I'm sure they must've heard that I was going to be there and fanboying out on it. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, they just couldn't take it. Um, fortunately their movie is very good. Uh, I'm kind of on the fence of whether it's as good as Bergman Island, which I think was Hansen loves best film to date um this kind of takes her back to more familiar territory for those who are more steeped in mia hansen love her last two films uh bergman island maya really took some pretty major departures from the kind of style she'd been working in less so like how she approached actors or visually just kind of Mm -hmm. in story structure this is more familiar if you've seen like things to come or eden or um goodbye first love where it's a lot of very short scenes um, that take the main character played by Lisa do um, through a series of very disparate life events that eventually kind of add up towards the whole picture of this woman's life. Um, and in this case, she's dealing with uh, raising a young daughter on her own. Um, her husband died some years before the film uh, starts and uh, has started to strike up kind of a friendship that very much you can tell it was going to turn to a romance with a uh, man played by Millville Papoud. Uh, I guess I don't know how to say the name at all. Um, and while also dealing with taking care of her elderly father played by Pascal Gregory, um, who ha- is, was a philosophy teacher and has developed some form of dementia and really can't take care of himself. And so she's going through the process of moving him into a nursing home that can take care of him but having to bounce them from home to home because of openings and availabilities and all this like bureaucracy of the elderly care industry. Um, and all of these aspects are so honest and so heartfelt. And Lisa do, I, we talked about this last year with um, France, but she's really developed mm-hmm. into an actress who is like a must watch for me. Um, I've always liked her and I've always thought she was very good, but I really with France and uh, deception and crimes of future. And now this one fine morning, I think she's really become like a full fledged artist. And she has, there's a moment in this film because uh, Milville should have just written the character's name now because now I have to say his stupid last name over and over again whatever melville poupard um he is uh married but he's an acquaintance of hers from way back and so a lot of their romance is kind of hinged on like young memories and stuff like that um and kind of like this unfulfilled desire they've secretly had for one another and that sort of thing but meanwhile he's married and has a kid and isn't we're ready to fully commit himself to Lisa do though. Honestly, who wouldn't come now? <laughs> All of us would leave our wives for Lisa do. Um, I hope Julie's not listening to this. Um, yeah. But uh, so she, there's a, one moment in the film where she has been missing him for a while. They've been kind of out of touch and she gets a text message from him. That's very sweet and encouraging. And she smiles at first and then she starts crying and then she starts kind of smiling again. And like the emotions Lisa do turns through in the space of like, 20 or 30 seconds is just like so touching and unbelievable um and it's just like i said me hands in love working in her very comforting strong zone of 
portrait of someone kind of at a crossroads in life, but it's not a crossroads that will necessarily greatly transform her state of being and comes after periods of even more upheaval. You know, she's already lost her husband and has been raising her daughter this whole time, but this particular crossroads just seems to intersect with a lot of her own personal concerns. Um, I don't know the extent to which this is personal for me, hence love who makes very autobiographical movies. Perhaps she has a parent in elderly care, but the details she gets of that process of kind of unloading uh, parents stuff. And like I said, the bureaucracy of the elderly care industry is really well detailed without, like I said, really dwelling on, it. I mean, a lot of these scenes are incredibly short, but she gets so much kind of feeling and emotion out of them. That's very, very touching. Um, it was shot by her longtime cinematographer, Denis Lenoir, um, who as always can really pull a pastel out of almost any environment. And so it looks fantastic. Um, so yeah, it's, it's up there with one of my favorite movies of the year for sure. All right. Well, speaking of fantastic looking movies, absolutely. Uh, the, the, um, uh, ocean heavy movie that I saw right before for uh, Human Flowers of Flesh is uh, Albert Albert Serra's Pacifiction Pacifiction. Not sure how you're supposed. I've been to say saying Pacifiction to a, the many people I've talked to this movie. About. Yeah, that's what I had been saying until I watched the like watched the movie and I was like, oh, Pacific Ocean. That's where it takes place. Is that supposed to be? Um. Uh. So first off, if you're on IMDb and you're reading the plot synopsis i'm not sure where they got this from it's not that's not really what happens in the movie Fantastic. Um, I, I love when that happens but um uh pacifiction i'm gonna stick with that pronunciation um is about a it, it takes place in a, a french polynesian like a, a polynesian sort of french colony i guess um and uh the the main character um, played by Benoit Magimel, I think, um, is a is the ambassador, the French ambassador to the island, and he sort of lives this life of luxury. But also, he f- thinks of himself as someone who is ingratiated with the people and not just representing the sort of rulers, the unfair colonizers. But also, like, but he thinks of himself as something of a go-between. But uh, the movie, and I re- I realized just scanning Rotten Tomatoes reviews that sadly I'm not the first person to come up with this co- comparison. Uh, in some ways, not formalistic, but in some ways it reminds me of Stars at Noon in hmm. that it's about a Westerner, a white Westerner in a largely non-white country who is trying to be in control of things but is actually just sort of being buffeted about by the political winds or sometimes the actual winds or 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 the just the the climate in many different ways of of the of the place uh and so it's this is an even longer movie than drag around burning it's a even two hours and 45 minutes and uh it's it i think would definitely belong to the tradition do we still talk about slow cinema or is that like so three years ago i'm not sure <laughs> that, if we're that still feels like explicit. that feels like so like 10 years ago <laughs> yeah um so but it, it definitely belongs to that tradition i think of slow cinema uh uh it's a it's a very meticulously paced movie that's often just like this guy hanging out and talking to people <laughs> but um it's fascinating to see this guy who is who who 
clearly thinks of himself as an authority and a person who's in a position of power uh, in scene after scene sort of have that cut out from under him. Uh, even as he tries to maintain uh, this appearance, like one of the things that is like very dryly, I said dry is a, uh, ironic term for a movie that takes place largely on the water or at least on the beach. Um, uh, but one of the dryly funny things about the movie is that no matter what he's doing, be it a business meeting, be it out on a fucking jet ski, he is always wearing the same like cream colored suit and like kind of like dressy Hawaiian type pattern shirt underneath it. Like he's nice. got this like wealthy man of leisure, um, presentation that kind of slowly becomes more ridiculous as the movie goes on and you realize how um, much of a pawn he is and, and how close that he is to losing whatever grip he thought he had uh, uh, on anything. But the the movie is absolutely gorgeous. This is where it's, I mean, Stars at Noon is also a gorgeous movie, but it's a gorgeous in a very different way. Uh, whereas Stars at Noon is a movie that seems to like... Uh, catch beauty here and there uh pacifiction is very like again meticulous like the like the plotting of the movie the 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 colors are incredibly rich and feel very well thought out and there's this brilliance of color but also this sense of everything being sort of like uh blistered by the sun at the same in the same at the same time because you're on this this um tropical island um uh, and then there's, I think, somewhat early on in the movie, maybe this standout sequence, and and this is maybe the reason that Human Flowers of Flesh didn't sit, didn't hit me as hard as it could have, and maybe I'm, I'm going to rub in that you didn't see this in the theater. I hope you get a chance to, Scott, because there's a there's a scene where he's just out on a boat and the waves are getting bigger and bigger, uh, and they're not they're in the distance, but there's every wave seems to be getting a little bit closer to where he is in his dumb cream suit standing on a boat while these towering waves are, are coming close to him one after another. Uh, and I think it's, it's not only is it an overpoweringly like visceral experience to see that on a huge screen with a, with a nice sound system. Uh, it's also kind of a foreshadowing of um, the forces that are out of his control that are, that are, perhaps soon going to overtake him. Yeah. Gorgeous right movie. Uh, yeah. Also one of the best of the year. Well, it is uh, grasshopper has it. So I'm sure I'll eventually catch it at a two day Acropolis screening or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, well, next uh, next movie track. is one we both saw and probably the most like archetypical <laughs> uh film festival movie and yeah, from a pure plot description yeah. yeah um is p off directed by anna oren i believe in her directorial debut also um she's apparently a visual artist of some sort um and it is Correct. about a in simplest terms about a woman who grows a horse tail <laughs> as she yeah. comes into a greater understanding of herself is represented by a horse tail um more specifically, uh, it's about a woman who, uh, whose sister runs a sound Foley studio for those who don't know. It's like the studios where you make sound effects. Um, um, real quick, you say sister, but I think 
the the doctor refers to Zara as they. So I think okay, this I think the character is supposed to be non-binary. This was me cribbing off the press notes because I couldn't remember this um, because yeah. the character is played by a non-binary uh, person. But I was I was like, okay, press notes, save me, save yeah. me from embarrassing myself on gender. And sure enough, they did not. Um, but maybe I'm misremembering. But I feel like when she goes to visit Zara which is her sibling's name in the yeah. hospital, the doctors are referring to Zara as they, like, they don't want to see you. They like, I think entirely possible. Like, I mean, we're both, you know, older men, I'm older than you. I'm a man. I'm 40, but this is a movie that started at what? 10 30. Yeah. 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 On a Thursday night. Yeah. Who's to say what happened? Exactly. Anyway, uh, the main woman is a woman and her uh, sibling uh, suddenly abandons fully studio. And so this woman has gets a call like as she's waking up that uh the director of the what what at first seems like a short film um is demanding their audio track uh we soon find out it's really just an audio track for a uh commercial i don't think they specified what the medicine is for but it Some has a series of horrific side effects yeah. Yeah. um and they're using kind of this like horse imagery to like make people give a sense of calm and so forth. And so she was just like desperately recreating horse noises in the Foley studio, which is very funny to watch this woman, like almost like ridden with anxiety and the clopping shoes and coconut shells and like churning a necklace around in her mouth to create like a kind of, uh, a harness yeah. noise. Um, yeah. and so it's got a lot of great details like that, but it's also just like beautifully shot on 16 millimeters it's like super saturated colors and in this kind of like experimental handheld camera work where it seems like at moments the film is constantly running out of the camera um and you know woman grows a horse tail what more do you want um it kind of like i said mirrors her coming into her own there's a sense of like her blooming sexuality um and it's i'd say mostly moving but also just like a cool cinematic experience yeah, but I mean, it is uh, very sexual. I feel like there's a lot yeah. of people who are going to like discover a fetish they didn't know they had <laughs> by watching this movie um, because the one with the horse uh, tail is also very sexy and very often in sexual uh, situations. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you mentioned the, the, like, the light. You mentioned it as like the film running out of the projector. One thing I noticed... Um, is that the there are shots where there's like light bleed like you like you associate with the end of a reel yeah or, or or whatever but it's just in the middle of the shot and the shot goes on sometimes True. and it reminded me only this is just i'm making this connection because i've recently been watching a number of uh jean-luc godard films um and the way he will bring he would past tense uh r.i.p um he would have music swell up in a way that I think movie savvy people expect means scene transition. Oh, sure. But then the music would just go away. And I thought of that, that same thing here where like there are shots, like when she goes to visit Zara in the mental hospital, wherever it is, and this is the table, it's like with the lights, light bleed starts coming in and subconsciously I'm like, okay, this shot, if not this scene is about to end. And then it just doesn't, it keeps going. <laughs> um, I like that kind of playing with expectation, I guess. Yeah, totally. Um, I don't know that I have any more observations on the movie, but I really dug it. Uh, I tried to check if it's coming out from somebody. I will look at that very briefly. Um, I sure hope it is because it is a cool 
weird, funky movie, but it might be too film festival to escape festivals. <laughs> yeah, sure enough, it doesn't have any distribution that's just on IMDb. But uh, you know, keep an eye out in your yeah, definitely keep funky an eye town. Out. Yeah, I really liked it. All right. Well, speaking of really like uh, the movie that I know you're probably most heartbreaking to miss, especially because uh, it's not only the best movie I've seen this year, it's one of the best movies I've seen in the past 10 years. Yeah. Uh, Laura Citarella's four hour opus, Trenque Laurent. Lo, ah, sorry. Trenque Laquan, I believe. Okay. I, they say it often enough in the movie that I was like, gonna register it. And then, of course, I forgot it. It could spend like a week or whatever. Yeah. Um, so the loose setup of this movie is that uh, there's a woman played by Laura Paredes, who's familiar to those who know Argentine films from La Flor, most especially, but um, she's been in a whole bunch of other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and she goes missing uh, at the very beginning of the film. There's two guys who are like asking about her at a gas station. We kind of slowly reason that the older of them uh, has some personal association with her. Um, and the younger one has a purely professional relationship with her. Both of those uh, assumptions are upended through a series of flashbacks that we get detailing her relationship with those two guys, as well as her relationship with the town, her professional obligations. She's um, a sort of biologist. She like classifies rare flowers, but she, uh, in one of her other jobs, she's a radio presenter who like gives short blurbs on like famous women throughout history in those radio appearances. She refers to herself as almost a biologist. So she's kind of like completing her academic cycle. Um, and her next job is expected to be in more academia. Um, so these two guys aren't sure why she disappeared. They're going to look for her. And, um, as they kind of uncover clues, we get a series of flashbacks. Um, the film is still in 12 chapters. And so the chapters will kind of alternate between like the quote unquote present and then the past. Um, and even to me anyway, even like the relationship between those two feels like it's constantly being upended because uh, one of the chapters in the second half of the film, four hours, the film is great, uh, graciously uh, having information in the middle. It's very much de- defined, designed to be a two-part film. So mm-hmm. we had a 20-minute interview. One of the chapters in the second half is um, the younger guy is listening to a recording she left behind at the radio station that then it, it's it must be like 40 minutes long or something. I don't know, but it, it's a giant chunk of the film. And then it has a lot of flashbacks dealing detailing uh, what she's speaking about. Um the movie very actively calls to mind La Ventura because its first uh, chapter title is La Aventura. Um, mm. And similarly, a film about a missing woman, the people who go looking for her and kind of the fruit, this pursuit of looking for somebody who disappeared because perhaps they disappeared on purpose and meant to leave everything behind. They're not really in any danger. Um, so that association, I wrote about this in my review, but that association got me thinking about like, for seeing love and tour and how like eye opening it was, you know, seeing it in college or whatever. And this whole period of like watching these great European art house films and the feeling that that happens so rarely where you encounter something that's like, obviously great to me, this is something that is obviously great. And, um, more so, I, I mean, we talked very lovingly about a lot of Argentine films, um, in our episode, what a year ago, probably at this point, it was a while ago. Um, this is like the culmination of a lot of what I've been seeing out of that country and a lot of what I've been loving, but takes it to me to kind of a 
higher level. And I don't mean to be high. I don't mean to say higher, like the, the other stuff isn't engaging in some deeper themes and some more interesting stuff. But I think there's a reason that like when people talk about LaFleur, they're like, it's about the beauty of storytelling, which is a very academic approach to cinema in general. Um, I would say this embraces that kind of like beauty of storytelling and stuff but also really cuts into like, well, why are we so invested in mm-hmm. the narratives of other people's lives? Um, I, I won't give too much away about what you learn in the flashbacks, but an early thing we learn is that um, Laura, the character's name also has the same name as the actress. Uh, Laura was investigating. She like was going through old library books and happened upon these letters that were hidden within them that detail this like, extravagant love affair between these two people and she becomes deeply fascinated with what they were up to and her fascination with them is kind of mirrored by the two guys fascination with trying to uncover what happened to her and it's just kind of this constantly nesting doll of like people being so much more interested in other people's lives than they are on their own to the extent that they start kind of abandoning their own um and what that says about them about the culture at large um, and I think the fact that she is a radio host kind of ties into this as well in a certain way, not only because she's presenting um, personal histories about like women throughout history, but also because I've noticed this in kind of like podcast culture of like true crime or like this American life kind of style of like how deeply people can get invested in stories that have nothing to do with them and how they form very definitive conclusions and opinions on who was right in these stories based on just hearing the smallest of details. And all these people are just like deeply invested in figuring out another person. And, but you can only figure out someone else so much. And it's very much about like the way we all attach meaning to other people and the way other people attach meaning to us and how hard that is to really take ownership of either end of it. But it's just something that happens inevitably. Um, and it's all just, so just got like a lot of great, like tiny storytelling beats that I think people who have watched a large, a lot of Argentine films for the past 10 years are kind of familiar with. Like when the younger guy, at some point he traces things to back, go back to his school and records at his school become key to like solving the next step in the mystery and as he goes back there's like a voiceover detailing or i think he's even explained i mean it's his voiceover i can't remember exactly he's like and i went to go see the old janitor and he was so happy to see me we see the janitor like running down the hall to like embrace him and he's like and then i saw the principal who was overjoyed and she's like running into <laughs> the hall and it's like keeps happening like, four different times and eventually like the shot cuts right as we see someone else like running and like laughing and seeing and going to hug him and so it's so well detailed with those like little personal interactions mm-hmm. that kind of help fill out the world. And it's got like this great relationship, like physical art and media and stuff and kind of the histories that live all around us. And then just has all these kind of aesthetic reinventions as it goes along in the last chapter of the movie, which I really won't give away, but it completely upends like the w- entire way the movie has been told to that point to this unbelievably uh heartbreaking and very like introspective way that really took the film to give it a higher level that i was already loving it um yeah i really can't say enough good things about it. i really really hope it gets distribution because it's it's very watchable too i mean for a four-hour film it really flies by i do recommend taking at least the intermission if not watching it over two separate days but um it's mystery plotting is very involving and it 
plays into exactly what it's kind of, if not critiquing, at least investigating in terms of the way we get caught up in people and the way you have to get caught up in people to watch any kind of movie. Um, but it embraces kind of that aspect too. Um, so yeah, I wrote a whole review of it, Battleship Pretension, definitely recommend reading it if yep. you want to learn more, but um, I absolutely completely loved it. Yeah, this is this is one of the my, one of my six reserved tickets, that, but yeah. I couldn't couldn't end up uh, making it for reasons. I mean, it ended up being sick, but for other reasons, I had personal stuff going on that, that kept me from being able to go to the the weekend of the festival. And I'm yeah, this is probably the one I'm most bummed that I didn't see, or maybe the next one you're going to talk about, which was also on my on my li- list of tickets. Yeah, so this is the latest latest Hong Sang Soo movie. He has one out in theaters right now the novelist film which is also quite good and he had two out in theaters earlier this year in front of your face and introduction which are also quite good uh walk up we'll he, probably... he's like the um uh, never mind all right never mind <laughs> uh well he's very prolific at the very least um and which is nice because there was a moment he went like a year without making a film and all of us Hong heads were like, what's yeah. happening? Is he going to make another film? And then sure enough, he just got like back going on the horse. Um, so walk up. Yes. So the first thing I'll say is that um, this was a funny screening to be at because it was very much like all the Hong Sang Soo people in LA. And I was like thinking to myself, like if someone takes out this theater, man, there's no one's there's not gonna be enough people to attend acropolis screenings in the future because like <laughs> their entire audience is here and people were like debating whether acropolis or mezzanine gives better screenings and i'm like this is a very niche audience yeah, um, that yeah. i am loosely a part of um so much so that i, I think i might have heard somebody like mention me without knowing i was there um maybe they didn't like recognize Ooh. me but uh my twitter photo is like obscured enough that it would make sense that they wouldn't necessarily recognize me but um I wasn't exactly sure that they're talking about me. So I didn't like pipe up and be like, you were saying, but um, <laughs> it made me feel good for a moment anyway. Um, yes. Walk up is Hong Sang Soo's newest film. Like most of his recent films, uh, the title is a very direct reference to what it's about. It's about a walk up apartment on like the fifth or so story of a building and the various people who go in and out of it. Um, it is owned by uh, one played by Lee Hai Young, um, who is a recent kind of collaborator of Hong's. She was the star of In Front of Your Face um, and is in the star also of Novel's film. This she's kind of not exactly a supporting role, but more of kind of a two hander with her and Kwon Hai Hyo, who um, frequent Hong viewers will recognize from tons and tons and tons of movies in the past 10 years. Um, but they're kind of like old friends. She uh ends up recommending that he come live in this apartment she has open and she's like i'll give you a good deal on rent he of course hong sang Soo movie he's a film director and so he just like needs a space to work um so he's happy to take it and it plays with time i think more actively than a lot of hong's movies have of late if you watch his stuff from before like 2016 it's like all he ever did was play with time and so it's kind of fun to see him get back in that mold and there's just kind of this great like amorphous picture of a place and the way in which people intersect with it and intersect with each other throughout it. And without it being like the place is a character man kind of thing, it's not as reductive as that, but it's kind mm-hmm. of like, it's a really cool like architectural space for starters. Cause this is very like narrow hallway. They have to go up to get it. And then there's like only so many angles they can kind of like shoot from within the 
apartment. Not that like Hong is famous for really shaking up his angles. He pretty much picks like one per scene and like good enough for one per, per location even. Um, but it kind of forces him into some interesting visual diagrams. And then it has this like deck area right outside. So it gives him this opportunity to kind of like explore it in all these different ways. But the film kind of cycles through an almost circular structure. The, the only thing I could like liken it to structurally is almost like a, um, Oh shit. Now I can't remember the artist's name. Um, MC Escher. It's like an oh. Escher painting in the way that like things curve around and then you think you've reached one point, but it's actually going back to another. Um, and really smartly done from a, writing an editorial perspective. Um, so it's probably, I, I'd say it's the best Hong movie I've seen. Well, don't mean to brag, but I've seen them all. Um, it's the best ha- thing Hong's done since Hotel by the River. It's not as good as that to me because that's still kind of the high watermark of recent, of late, okay. but um, it's the and best. That's one I've seen, so I feel like I did right there. There you go. Um, yeah, definitely recommend it. As with all of his films coming out from Cinema Guild at some point, so check that out and catch up on the other movies he's released over the past year. Yeah, I have to catch up on because I don't think I've seen one since Hotel by the River, which is what four years. Oh ago? damn. Yeah. Well, like I said, he did take that year off. So then he only did the woman who ran and then the four that yeah. came out this year. Do you remember when the Los Angeles Rams had a so image strange. that was clearly the, the woman who ran poster? So strange. Could not figure it out. Must have just been like the graphic designer was into it, or maybe I don't think it was the same designer, because I think people ended up like diving into this. But um yeah. strange. We did have a Very listener funny. who when he saw I was tweeting about uh, seeing walk up said that he was looking forward to you and I detailing the various theatrical venues in which we've seen Hong Sang Soo movies, but uh, now it's inorganic. So I just wanted to shout him out and say, uh, I didn't forget about you guy. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I'm trying to think I mostly have AFI fest to thank for. And or, LA film um, fest one year. And I was going to say that one year there was like an 11 PM screen. It was like so late. I don't know if it was really 11 PM. It was sort of like 945 it was or something. Nine was, something. Yeah. Yeah. There was a late screening of, um, on the beach and night alone, which I, which I loved. Um, excuse me. Yeah, All right, we have one more movie to talk about. Uh, yeah, unfortunately it's, it's end on a downer for me, but I understand an upper for you at least. Uh, it is Sarah Polly's new film, women talking. Um, which honestly could have used a little more women talking to me. I don't know. Um, I, I, I don't want to like, I feel bad ragging on the movie because it's not only about a very serious subject that's based on a real life incident. It's very serious and, you know, it's very soberly told and it's very earnestly told and very, uh, you know, they, they clearly mean it, but I don't, it just, it was too, why don't you tell the people what it's about? I guess. Uh, it, well, um, I don't know how much you knew going in. I knew almost nothing. Um, so I don't want to give too much away about sort of like where and when, but it takes place in like a, like a Mennonite community or like an Amish type community. Mennonite, uh, yeah. Mennonite. Yeah. Um, in which we, we learned very quickly that there's been a series of sexual assaults on the women. Um, and the local, police have been called and the men have had to go into town to, to face questioning, I guess, um, or, or something And the women of the, or some of the women of the community are using that opportunity to, to get together, to decide what their next steps should be about how to 
deal with the fact that this was happening and also that the men of the community seemed to be to have let it happen i, I guess is uh the, well the that's so many of them were involved and the rest yeah, let it happen yeah. so i guess it, i mean it is basically they give themselves like i think it's like three different options to to choose from and then they spend a good portion of the movie debating those options but yeah there are are also i think why i i liked that it wasn't just women talking for an hour and 50 minutes or or whatever it is it, uh, you know they they take little breaks and we get to see sort of their uh community and their lives out outside of it um i mostly i think liked it for its uh um measured pace and uh cinematography by luke montpellier the movie is in the uh not so common 2.76 to 1 aspect ratio it is a uh, super wide a very wide screen movie uh but i think that's because you've got a lot of shots where there are multiple women in a you know uh, uh sitting down talking and 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 the wider screen allows uh polly and and the cinematographer to to frame more of them at once i guess is the sure is the idea but i i like the the look of the movie and the and the color of the movie um i also like that it it is a dialectic but it's also not i i i appreciated how much there is like a traditional narrative like there are traditional story beats to it because it um especially because it has this ticking clock of like the men are going to come back right you know and we have to do something uh by then um and uh uh it's also a showcase for a number of actors yeah, that I, mean, I really like, love. I think that's a big part of it for me. You've got Rooney Mara, you've got Claire Foy, you've got the great Jesse Jesse Buckley. Um, also, um, Sarah Polly being a uh, proud Canadian, cast uh, the Canadian <laughs> actress uh, Sheila McCarthy. Um, have you ever seen I've Heard the Mermaid Singing from, from the 80s? She's the wow. star of that great movie. Um, and she's obviously, that's from the 80s. She's one of the older women in, in, uh, in Women Talking. But it's a great... Um, showcase i think for a lot of uh actors that i like yeah i mean the acting is very good i just found all the characters to be like and this is this character who represents this point kind of thing and i didn't really like the look of the film it's kind of shot in like clint eastwood vision where it's like super desaturated and it's like it's maybe could have been black and white but maybe they <laughs> didn't have the funding for it um is black and white more expensive no, I mean funding like a studio and put it up kind of thing. Oh, right, right. Releasing black and white movies is tougher. Um, right, right. I see what you're saying. Yeah. And it has these like kind of Terrence Malick kind of cutaways to like the beauty of the field and stuff. But I felt like if it wasn't so desaturated, if they just embraced the natural beauty of the environment, then the like appeal of staying would be more obvious because like the women are deciding should they do nothing, stay and fight, or leave entirely. And mm-hmm the movie does a good job at dissecting all those viewpoints, but I never really felt like the central pole of the place. It was like, well, yeah, this place is miserable and looks like shit. Of course you'd want to leave. And it's like, you need like a feeling of home that like really like 
nurtures I mean, them. I see what you're saying, but also, um, I don't think it, you have to try too hard to make like people leaving home is difficult. So like it, it's what, you know, totally. Um, and also it's, I, I think the argument for leaving, I think the movie makes, um, introduces the outside world little bit by bit in a way that I think the argument for staying is less. We love it. So here so, so much and more, we are so unfamiliar with, with what's out there and it seems so scary to us. Oh yeah, for sure. But like to get a, just get a bit of that sentimental pull and like, obviously they can only have so much when they have, you know, discovered that they're kind of uh, being attacked and raped, but at the same time, you know, their family's there. It's all they've ever known. It, it just felt like a little warmth in the picture could have gone a long way or just go black and white. You know, this kind of like in between stage, I think really only works for Clint. But I mean, like I said, the characterization was the my main thing. And like, especially that there was a strong resistance, I felt, to ever make the women look ridiculous, I guess. And like, it just seemed to be kind of pandering to a certain audience's vision of rural, simple life where they're all so earnest and forthright and clearly spoken and know everything mm. about what they believe. And like, if this movie was made in the seventies, there'd be at least one completely silly person in this. And like, it's a, it, the entire community has almost no education and they all only know each other. Someone's going to be a little ridiculous and that doesn't have to take away from the seriousness of the movie but the movie's like so determined to make sure we know how serious it is that any elements of humor can only be like, well, that was a pretty clever remark kind of humor. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like active comedy. And like, I know it's a serious situation, but it doesn't have to, you know, there can be a little bit of warmth and joy and everydayness to it too. And I don't know. I felt like Polly was kind of removed from the exact environment she was trying to depict. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, um, uh, I see those points. Uh, we, but we also didn't talk about, um, I mentioned all the women in the movie. We didn't talk about the one part I might agree is a weaker part, which is Ben, uh, Ben, ben Wishaw's character. Yeah. I like Ben Wishaw. I always have, but, um, his character is like the one good man, the hashtag not all men, uh, yeah, big time. guy is definitely one of the weaker parts of, of the movie. But, uh, as someone who, has not like this is the first time I've liked a Sarah Polly narrative movie. I liked Story We Story We Tell, the documentary, but I didn't like away from her, and I didn't like Take This Waltz, um, and I felt like it was because she wasn't, and maybe it's because um, uh, it's a dialectic, and the characters represent different points of of view as opposed to just Sarah Polly's point of view. I felt like the movie wasn't pushing us to agree with characters that we don't, which I feel like is something that I have resisted with her, with her movies is, is there, I feel like she's always trying to get me to identify with characters that I don't. Um, See, that's the one thing that I, I, cause I also have not been like super fond of her movies to date, but I, I at least like that, that like she's taken a claim that yeah. I, uh, I might not be on board with, but more power to you. All right. Well, we talked about all the movies we both saw at AFI Fest. There are also a bunch of movies that played AFI Fest that are really good that I saw at TIFF that I was kind of hoping. 
Because when you tweeted out your plans, they included Godland, didn't they? Yeah, I was just like wiped from the day and yeah. uh, couldn't circle back. But you liked it? Good stuff? Yeah, yeah. I liked Godland. I really liked um, De Humani Corporis Fabrica, uh, which I saw at TIFF. To oh, yeah, I was super intrigued by that. Yeah, uh, The Eternal Daughter is very good. That played. I feel like there's other stuff that played TIFF that I saw. Oh, um, yeah. I forgot to tell this story when I was. In oh, line No for... Bears, the new, new Panahi. Oh, oh yeah. Ahead. I want to see that. When I was in line for Trinque, uh, Loquen, um, the Eternal Daughter was at the same time. And like, there were like, you know, 200 people lined up for that. And like a dozen of us lined up for this Argentinian four hour movie. And yep. they just like forgot about us completely. <laughs> and so it got to be like 15 minutes before the movie started. And we we're like, I think we should just go up. So we just let yeah. ourselves in. <laughs> uh well yeah check out uh scotch reviews check out my tiff reviews of some of the things i uh mentioned that i saw um at battleshipretention.com you can email us uh david battleshipretention.com tyler battleshipretention.com i'm on twitter at davy pretension tyler's on twitter at tyler pretension my other podcast is called the one where i met your mother we watch an episode of friends an episode of how i met your mother every week that's me and my wife natalie uh we do that and we have uh a lot of fun we just watched a um uh, we just talked about a, a, a one of my favorite How I Met Your Mother episodes called The Best Burger in New York, um, which has an all-timer all uh, cameo guest appearance of uh, Regis Philbin as himself. Always a delight. Uh, and that's uh, that's the one where I met your mother. You can find that at Battleship Retention or wherever you find podcasts. Uh, Scott, where can people find you should you want them to? Uh, still on Twitter in its dying days. Um, yeah. And letterboxed and i mean you could email me rail tomorrow at gmail.com i might not see it i don't check that box too often i just kind of scroll to make sure i'm seeing a message from david but other than that <laughs> i'm the only one still emailing you i mean i still get publicist emails so i like, kind of take note of those and like this time of year i'm like looking out for screening links friend of yep. your stuff yep. but um it was mainly about like my work at my like critic address and i don't do as much of that anymore so Right. Pretty easy to let it go. All right. Well, um, thank you. Uh, thank you, Scott, for talking AFI movies. Uh, hey, it's us. always a pleasure. Thank you at home for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.